Welcome back to our Wednesday night study, and this is the second week of this particular series where we are looking at uh, the signs of salvation. And so last week we began this, and uh, we began by looking at Matthew chapter 28. We'll quickly move back to Acts chapter 2 again, but Matthew 28, at the end of Matthew's gospel, uh, just before Jesus' ascension, he gives the Great Commission to his church, and he says this, says, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we, we noted last week that there are uh, four commands or verbs here in this commission. Go to the nations, make disciples, baptize them, and then teach them uh, to obey all the things that Jesus has commanded us. And so we said, if we are to do uh, the second half of this, that is to baptize and teach disciples, it would be important for us to know the signs that indicate that someone actually genuinely has come to faith and become a disciple. Uh, so that would uh, give us some insight on who we should continue to evangelize versus who we should baptize and who we should teach. Uh, it would allow us to administer uh, and encourage assurance of salvation to those who have come to faith uh, and avoid giving false assurance uh, to someone who has not yet come to faith. And so last week, we turned to Acts chapter 2 uh, and the response to Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And we looked at uh, the first sign of salvation, which was the conviction of sin and repentance from sin uh, there in verse 37. Uh, in verse 36, uh, they had Peter had finished his sermon. And in verse 37, they began to respond. And they said, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? So we talked about their conviction of sin being cut to the heart, their response uh, of asking what they should do. And so uh, in verse 38, Peter said to them, repent. And so last week we looked at the idea of repentance and what that was. But Peter continues and he says, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this evening, we're going to deal with uh, this issue of baptism, but it's going to come under the heading of obedience to Christ. Uh, one of the things that we might note uh, in our confession of faith is that when it speaks to the subject of baptism, uh, it says, that those who do actually profess repentance towards God, which we talked about last week, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. And so obedience to Christ is important. A, a true, someone who truly has come to faith in Christ and been saved, become his disciple, would want to obey him as their Lord. But then we have to ask ourselves the question, well, the command was to go, make disciples, baptize them, and then teach them. Uh, so uh, how are they to obey before we have taught them? They don't know what they are to do, what they are to, uh, how they are to obey uh, from the beginning. We're still learning his commands. All of us are still on this spectrum of learning 
obedience to Christ, learning the ways in which we are to obey him. We're still mortifying sin in our own lives. Uh, And so how can we then take obedience as a sign of salvation? If someone has just gotten saved, they haven't even had a chance to learn anything. Uh, So it's not really uh, so much in in that initial stage that they have this track record of obedience. Rather, it is the desire to obey. If they have become Christ's and he is their Savior and Lord, they would desire to obey him. And we can see this sort of desire for obedience uh, throughout the scriptures. And I'll just read a couple of verses. Uh, The quintessential one being in Psalm chapter 1, where it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but... His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So uh, the person who is a righteous person who has repented and trusted in Christ for faith delights in Christ's law. They delight in his commandments. They would delight to obey uh, the one who has saved them. Uh, Again, we see a similar expression in Psalm 119, verse 97, where it says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Uh, And so, if we truly have come to faith in Christ as our Savior and our Lord, we should want and desire to obey him, even if we don't know how. So these people ask the question to Peter, what shall we do? Uh, And Peter begins to instruct them. Uh, You'll notice that if you continue reading uh, and you get down to verse 40, it says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. So uh, we could presume there was some instruction from Peter here on why they needed to be baptized and, and what this looked like for them to have faith in Christ, to have repented of their sins, and now to follow him uh, in obedience. Remember that Christ, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment, said that it was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, So that's the summary of the law and the commandments is to love God. And so if we love him, we should want to please him and to obey him. And the first step of obedience for a new believer is to follow Christ in baptism. Peter says to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized. So what does it mean to be baptized then? We would need to instruct them in this. Uh, Does it mean simply to get wet, to have a little water sprinkled on you? Can we stand on the sidewalk and spray people down with a hose as they go by? Is that baptism? What is baptism? Well, interestingly, if we were to uh, consider this word baptize or baptism, uh, that's actually a transliteration of the Greek word. It's not a translation. A translation would be Uh, to be immersed or to dip something. That's what the Greek word means. Uh, Think, consider the the story in Acts chapter 8 of the Ethiopian eunuch uh, who has the gospel explained to him from the book of Isaiah, sees some water and says, what prevents me from being baptized? They go down into the water and he is baptized. So, A commentator comments and says, here we see the rite, and he's talking about the the sacrament, right? The the rite used among the men of old time in baptism, for they put all the body into the water. Anybody want to guess who said that? John Calvin. Interesting. You go to John chapter 3. John the Baptist and Jesus baptizing 
at the Jordan River because there was much water there. From these words, we may infer that John and Christ administered baptism by plunging the whole body beneath the water. John Calvin. Interesting. Both of those passages, his very next comment is, but let's not get hung up on the mode, it's okay to sprinkle. Uh, but he readily admits, and so did Luther and most of the other reformers, that the Greek word actually means to dip or to immerse. So, so that's what the word means. Is there any significance to that? Well, I think there is. Baptism is a picture. It's a picture uh, of our obedience to Christ. It pictures um, outwardly what has already happened in the heart. Repentance and is an act of obedience to Christ in the heart to turn away from sin and towards God uh, at, with a regenerate heart. And so baptism is a picture of that. Uh, it's a picture of our death to sin and our resurrection to new life. Uh, interestingly, um, we might note that baptism is the great equalizer for Christians, right? Baptism is not conducted differently uh, dependent upon uh, your bank balance statement or dependent upon your uh, station in society or your age or your ethnicity or nationality. No, all Christians are baptized with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Doesn't, there's, we're all baptized into Christ in the same way. Uh, so this picture here is that we have been united to Christ and we are obeying him, following his example even uh, in baptism. Baptism is a picture of our being cleansed from sin. Uh, an immersion, being dipped in the water, is an accurate picture of that. It's a picture that our whole person needs to be cleansed from sin and that we are fully cleansed. Sprinkling a little water or pouring a little water on someone's head does not convey that same picture. Baptism is a picture of our new life in Christ. One of the key passages that we would turn to uh, to discuss this picture of baptism would, of course, be Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, uh, where Paul mentions this. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So baptism is a picture of that. You go under the water, that's a picture of burial. You come up out of the water, it's a picture of being raised with him to new life. Colossians chapter 2, which uh, interestingly is a passage where many who are proponents of infant baptism and of sprinkling uh, would turn to Colossians chapter 2 because uh, here Paul mentions baptism and circumcision uh, closely together. He says in chapter 2 verse 11, In him that is in Christ you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. He's talking about circumcision of the heart by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And so some people would say, see, baptism is the New Testament sign of the covenant corresponding to circumcision in the Old Covenant. But right here he said, buried with him in baptism. The picture of being immersed is that picture of burial and raised with him through faith. 
uh, an infant is not raised with Christ through faith. Uh, they're often says that it's by the faith of their parents that they're being baptized. But that is not the picture that uh, is being conveyed to us here in Colossians. As well, baptism is a picture of our union with Christ, our identity with him. We are buried with him in baptism, raised with him to new life. In Hebrews chapter 2, it tells us that Christ, as our mediator of the new covenant, Uh, that it says, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In all things, he had to be made like us. And so that included him undergoing uh, baptism. So we might often, well, if baptism is a picture of our death to sin and resurrection to new life, Christ had no sin. He, He didn't need to be washed clean from sin. Why did he have to be baptized? He did it for us as an example. Peter Masters, again, the, the pastor at the London Metropolitan Tabernacle, said this, We would not expect an artist to paint a landscape successfully with just a few drops of paint, nor can we illustrate conversion with a few drops of water. The, the, baptism is such a rich picture of what it means to be converted, washed clean from our sins, dead to sin, raised to new life with Christ, identified with him in those things. Uh, Baptism by immersion uh, is the only accurate picture that represents uh, what is going on there. But now we come to uh, dealing with some of the tricky stuff here in Acts chapter 2. Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Have any of you seen uh, the movie The Apostle with Robert Duvall in it? Uh, He portrays this character who uh, comes to faith, but in a kind of a charismatic uh, situation. And and so he proclaims himself to be an apostle. And there's a hilarious scene. I don't think it was meant to be funny, but I find it funny. He goes into a river and baptizes himself uh, in the presence of no witnesses. He says that, in the presence of no witnesses, I baptize myself in the name of the Father, and he goes under, and he comes back up in the name of the Son, he goes under, and he comes back up in the name of the Holy Spirit, he goes under, and comes back up, and one more time in the name of Jesus, and he goes under, and comes back up. It's really funny. Um, But so what does it mean to be baptized in the name of Jesus uh, versus what Jesus himself said in Matthew 28, that we are to go and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, there's a lot of debate around this. Uh, you may have heard the name T.D. Jakes, popular TV preacher. He is a oneness Pentecostal. Uh, in other words, they don't believe in the Trinity. They embrace an idea concerning God known as modalism. Uh, back in the third century, this heresy was called Sabellianism. Uh, it's an anti-Trinitarian view of God that, that says that God is one, And sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's the Son, sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. He adopts these different modes depending on the need at the time. And so they turn to Matthew 28, 19, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And they say those are titles, not names. It says in the name of these three titles, what is the name? And they go, the name is Jesus. So they view Matthew 28, 19 as a sort of riddle that we have to solve. What is the name? And the name is Jesus, and so they just baptize in the name of Jesus because they don't believe in the Trinity. There are some real problems with that. First of all, we believe that the Bible teaches the Trinity. Uh, 
but secondly, consider Colossians 3.17. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. So if we read that the same way they read Acts 2.38, then does that mean that when I get up in the morning and get dressed, that I should proclaim, I get dressed in the name of Jesus and go in the kitchen and prepare myself some breakfast and say, I eat breakfast in the name of Jesus. Or I brush my teeth in the name of Jesus. That's not what it means to do all things in the name of Jesus. It means to do all things for his glory under his authority as one who confesses him as Lord. Uh, And so consider 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and uh, of course this church has got some difficulties and some division going on. And so in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 14, Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. I don't think there was any doubt or confusion. I don't think anybody thought that when Paul actually baptized uh, Gaius or Crispus that he said, I baptize you in the name of Paul. That's not what he means here. He means, lest anyone think that I baptized you in my own authority or into union with me. No, I baptized you into Christ. I baptized you into union with him, not on the basis of his authority. So when Acts 2.38, when Peter says to let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, what he means is under the authority of or be baptized into Christ. Consider that Matthew 28.19, that command by Jesus to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is given to those who do the baptizing. Whereas this instruction of Peter's is given to those who are being baptized. So what is he really saying to them? He is saying to them that they are to profess their faith in Christ, that they are to call on the name of Christ, which in fact is what it says in Acts 22, 16. Uh, Paul at this point speaking and says, and now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's what it means when Peter tells them to be baptized in the name of Christ is to call on the name of Christ, to publicly profess your faith in Christ. And so if we think about baptism as an act of obedience for a new believer, it is then publicly announcing to other people, I'm a Christian. I now bear his name. I profess Christ is my Lord. And so that's why we would say when we baptize someone, upon your profession of faith in Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That fulfills both Matthew 28, 19 and Acts 2, 38. Furthermore, we would understand that you know, this isn't a magic formula uh, that's being proposed here. Matthew 28, 19 says, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38 says, in the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 8.16 says, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Acts 10.48 says, in the name of the Lord. Acts 22.16 said, calling on the name of the Lord. And most uh, interesting in response to those such as T.D. Jakes, who would say that we have to figure out what the name is, and that name is Jesus, and so that's what we baptize into, 
Uh, consider Paul in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. He comes across a, a group of people who had been baptized, uh, disciples. And, and so he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So when they were baptized, apparently, whoever baptized them did not instruct them concerning the Holy Spirit, which Peter does in Acts 2, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul was asking them about this, and they said, we didn't even hear anything about a Holy Spirit. What, what is this? And so Paul is a little bit shocked, and he says, into what then were you baptized? He expected they would have heard of the Trinity, of the Holy Spirit, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit when they were baptized. They had been baptized maybe in the name of Jesus, but had not uh, been told of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, Paul expected that they would have heard the teaching concerning the nature of God and the Trinity uh, prior to their baptism. So that sort of negates T.D. Jakes and the Oneness Pentecostals right there. So to be baptized in the name of Jesus is for the baptizee to proclaim their allegiance, their profession of faith publicly, that they belong to Christ, that they have been united to him by faith, and this baptism is a picture of what has already happened in their heart. But then Peter also says that they are to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Does that mean then that baptism itself is what regenerates someone or removes their sins from them? Well, the idea uh, of baptismal regeneration, that is, that baptism is necessary and instrumental to uh, the cleansing of our sins, and that without it, uh, you can't experience regeneration or the new birth forgiveness. Uh, first of all, uh, if we use Brian's go-to example, the thief on the cross, was he baptized? No. Was he saved? Absolutely. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So baptism can't be necessary for salvation or Jesus was lying to the thief on the cross. But Roman Catholics would believe in a sort of baptismal regeneration, right? They say when they baptize someone that that baptism as a sacrament and they do believe that it works ex operato and in the working of it, uh, if, the, if the priest says the words correctly, it works. Uh, and so it is like a magic formula, and that the baptism removes from the person being baptized the guilt of original sin. So the Roman Catholic says when you are baptized as an infant, as an adult, whatever it happens, when the priest says the words and sprinkles the water on you, that is the moment in time where the guilt of original sin is removed from you. And of course then the, Romans have, the Roman Catholics have this whole system of uh, you committing venal sins or mortal sins and having to have the grace of your baptism renewed through penance and various things. But, uh, you know, there are other groups that also believe in forms of baptismal regeneration. Uh, one of those, we, there's one of these churches in Lapeer, uh, the Churches of Christ. Uh, most famously, you may know them because of the Duck Dynasty guys. They belong to the churches of Christ. The churches of Christ uh, would deny that they believe in baptismal regeneration. But what they do believe is that when you get baptized, that is the moment in which you are actually united to Christ. Prior to that, you may have faith, you may have repented, but you haven't actually been savingly united to Christ until you are baptized. And 
knowing that that is what baptism is doing for you. So if you were baptized previously and you didn't know that that's what baptism was doing for you, you have to be baptized again by them, of course. So basically, unless you're baptized by them for the remission of your sins, you're not saved uh, according to them. Presbyterians, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who baptize infants, uh, they believe that the, the act of baptism puts you in the covenant, in the, in the new covenant, right? Uh, in the case of children who are baptized in a Presbyterian church, it is on the basis of the faith of the parents that that child is put into the covenant. Now, this is where we disagree with them fundamentally, not necessarily because of the mode of baptism. We do disagree on that way, but the understanding of the covenants because in the Presbyterian book of church order, that child who's been baptized on a profession of faith made by his parents, when he reaches a certain age, if he does not profess faith in Christ, he is to be considered a covenant breaker and removed from membership in the church. Well, that is a fundamental difference in how we view the new covenant. They think the new covenant can be broken that it's possible to be in the covenant without actually being regenerate and that you can break the new covenant. And we would say, no, the new covenant cannot be broken. If you are in the covenant, you are in the covenant. It can't be broken. And so we would disagree with them in that way, although the Presbyterians do not believe in baptismal regeneration the way the Roman Catholics or the churches of Christ would. Those who would think that Peter is teaching baptismal regeneration right here have a little problem because Peter would contradict that in the very next chapter. In chapter 3, uh, as he is preaching there in Solomon's portico uh, in, in the temple area there in Jerusalem, as he preaches to them, uh, he tells them that they, have, they are responsible for the crucifixion of Christ even though they did it in ignorance. And he says in verse 18, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Peter doesn't mention baptism. He tells them to repent so that their sins can be blotted out. Repentance is what actually removes the sins. When we repent, that demonstrates that our heart has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and we have turned away from that sin. Baptism is merely a public profession, an outward act demonstrating what has already happened in the heart. In Acts chapter 16, uh, similarly, turn over here to Acts chapter 16 beginning in verse 30. So they, believe, so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. So here we have them telling him, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And then after they instruct him, and all, notice they preached the word, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. So there was no one in his house who was too young to hear and understand the word of the Lord. Uh, and they heard the word and then they were baptized. But it was belief in the Lord Jesus Christ that saved them, not the act of baptism. And so we need to make that clear uh, when someone comes to faith. 
that it is their repentance, their faith in Christ that saves them, not the act of baptism. Baptism is merely an act of obedience, demonstrating and publicly professing the faith that has already occurred in their hearts. Peter then goes on and says in verse 38 here back in Acts chapter 2 um, that they are to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is not necessarily tied to baptism as much as it is to repentance, uh, but uh, the idea here is that the Holy Spirit indwells all believers uh, and you'll notice there is no mention here in Acts 2 uh, of those who are baptized speaking in tongues afterwards. Uh, and throughout the book of Acts, this speaking in tongues that occurs after people get saved occurs in various different ways uh, throughout the course of Acts, just as uh, the formula that we're told that they are to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of the Lord, it varies. And I think intentionally so. I think that God inspired it that way so that we wouldn't latch onto a formula and say, no, this is exactly how it has to happen, and if it, if it had happened the same way every time, then the Pentecostals might have a point that when someone gets saved and they get baptized, then they start speaking in tongues. Well, it doesn't happen that way in a consistent basis. It happens in different ways so that we wouldn't latch on to a formula like that. Verse 39 is another one that is often tied to baptism uh, in which our Presbyterian brothers would turn. It says, For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who were afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Well, let's just think about what Peter is saying here. The promise uh, of salvation by faith in Christ is to you, those who are hearing his word, hearing the gospel preached, to your children. And I don't think that he simply means uh, to the children that are with them at that moment, but what he's saying is that it is for future generations of the Jewish people. He's in Jerusalem preaching to Jews. He's saying Jewish people now and forever in future generations, anyone who repents and believes in Christ, the promise is for them. It is also to all who are afar off, Gentiles, to the nations, to anyone, whether they're Jew or not. And then he concludes, as many as the Lord our God will call. So the promise is for those who are called by God as a work of God and not of man. And so baptism then follows our faith and our confession of faith in Christ. Notice it says in, chapter, in verse 41, it says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. So all of those who had been instructed, they had heard the sermon, they were cut to the heart, they asked what we are to do. Peter instructs them, explains to them repentance and faith and salvation and baptism as an act of obedience, and then they are baptized. Notice also that it says that they were baptized and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Uh, so baptism is tied to church membership, right? Um, that's the reason as Baptist churches, we don't let somebody join the church who hasn't been baptized. You have to be baptized to be a member of the church. It is your public profession of faith in Christ, that your heart has been regenerate, that you have been united to him by faith. Uh, so you can't be in Christ if you have not had that faith, and that public profession must occur uh, for you to be a member of the church. Notice also, uh, and we'll just quickly uh, look at this, but in verse 42 it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship 
in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now we're going to look at some of these elements further in the coming weeks, but uh, the breaking of bread is commonly understood here as a reference to the Lord's Supper. So again, this is an act of obedience uh, that we uh, profess our faith in Christ every time we take the Lord's Supper. And what does Paul tell uh, the Colossians again, or the Corinthians again? He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So our obedience to partake of communion is a profession of our belief and our faith in the sacrifice of Christ and his atoning work on the cross. Uh, and so these two ordinances that Christ gave his church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, are public acts of profession where we are proclaiming Christ's death and proclaiming our union with him in his death and in his resurrection until he comes. And so, you know, in verse 42, it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. In verse 41, it says those who gladly received his word were baptized. And so as we look for obedience as a sign of salvation and those who have heard the gospel, uh, what we're looking for is that gladness, uh, that steadfast and glad desire to obey Christ by following him in baptism and in participating in the Lord's Supper with the church. It's both of those things are proclaiming Jesus is Lord and he is my savior. I have faith in him. If someone were to say that they were a Christian, that they were saved and to say, I have, but I have no desire to be baptized. I don't want to partake of the Lord's Supper with the church. We would rightly ask why. What's going on in your heart that you can claim allegiance to Christ, claim love for him, claim union with him, but not want to publicly profess that in baptism or by partaking of the supper together with the church? Perhaps that person simply needs to be taught what these ordinances mean, what they symbolize and represent, or perhaps they're still in rebellion and cannot publicly proclaim Jesus is Lord. Uh, and so this is why we would look for a desire to obey Christ by participating in these two ordinances as a sign that someone's heart truly has been changed. If Jesus is our Lord, then we should want to proclaim that and to obediently follow his instructions in these two ordinances. Let's close in a word of prayer.